Welcome to Joe Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, our guest today is a good one. It is Sam Stein from the Daily Beast. I'm recording this intro on Wednesday morning, the 7th. Uh, last night was the midterm elections in the United States. Fascinating stuff. The House flips to the Democrats. The GOP expands its majority in the Senate. Split decision, uh, to be sure. But some interesting details to really mine here. And so Sam and I get into that. Sam is as good as it gets when it comes to political analysis and just kind of taking it seriously but not taking it seriously, if that makes sense. Obviously, political theater can be insane, uh, but there are real stakes. And uh, Sam does a good job of really uh, kind of getting through the BS and understanding what's going on. Um, I got to meet him years ago in Washington, D.C. Fascinating guy. And uh, this is a really cool podcast. I, I, I apologize for becoming emotional. But when you start talking about stuff like climate change, it is difficult to do so. Not to not do so, I guess. Um, but I think you'll dig this. And, uh, you know, listen, is there a little partisan vent in this conversation? Sure. But what I'm really trying to get to is uh, trends and data and what the heck's going on here. So uh, check all that out. I think you will uh, enjoy it. Also, uh, it is off-season in baseball. World Series has happened. But I'm writing. I'm doing a uh, off-season extravaganza. That is articles on all 30 teams. Yes, all 30 teams. What is happening with each of those teams? Where are they looking? How are they looking personnel-wise now? What should we expect in free agency, trades, next season, going forward, all that good stuff? Uh, we're on the NL East start. We're going alphabetical by division. So the Braves have been published. You can check that out at cbssports.com. And the Marlins as well, cbssports.com. I have filed the Mets. I'm working on the Phillies. We'll get to the Nationals. And we will uh, make our way through the entire league. We'll make it a fun little project and see if we can get done uh, – well, if not before the winter meetings, then maybe before Christmas and uh, give us a feel for what's going on. Of course, we'll update in real time. If Bryce Harper signs with, I don't know, the Seattle Pilots, then uh, we will report on that. Uh, also at CBSSports.com, which is where most of my work lives. And yeah, so go enjoy this non-baseball podcast. It is about politics, which is very topical. And it is with Sam Stein, who is very good. Enjoy. Samstein Daily Beast, welcome to the podcast. How are you, sir? Oh, good, man. How are you doing? I am great. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You're one of my favorite political of writers, course. commentators, what have you. And, uh, Thank you. yeah, and an eventful evening uh, went down. So we got to get into all this stuff. And look, there's a lot of ways that I want to go at this. But I think one of the ways I want to start uh, is talking about, you know, some of the gains that were made in among groups that we didn't necessarily expect or groups that we didn't see from the past. Let's see if I can run it all down. So, it's the sure, first sure. two Muslim co- congresswomen, first two Native American co- uh, congresswomen, first openly gay male governor, first female governors in Maine and Tennessee, the youngest woman ever to be in Congress. We got some other stuff, too. How did all this happen? Was this some sort of historical tipping point for firsts, or was this just kind of a natural progression? I think a little bit of both, probably. I mean, you, I think 
a lot of this probably has to do with just sort of the changing cultural dynamics of America. We're becoming a more culturally progressive place. If not, I mean, politically progressive, that's debatable, but culturally progressive, we're more acceptable of gays. We're uh, more acceptable when some, some parts of society Muslims. And I think that just is reflected in the people we nominate and elect. But I, I guess a lot of it is also strategic. You know, Democrats, uh, after licking their wounds in the post-2016 election environment, basically thought to themselves, okay, well, what kind of candidates can we run in the Donald Trump era that will excite our base, that will generate enthusiasm, uh, and that maybe can transcend uh, the political appeals that sort of limited our reach prior to Donald Trump. And in some of these districts, because, you know, either they're gerrymandered or because they are reliably democratic, the right candidate to run is someone who would break boundaries. And so, you know, we have the first Muslim uh, being elected to the uh, Congress, uh, Jared Pauls being the first openly gay governor of Colorado, of course. Uh, but then he just had like a, a very strategic choice to run a ton of women candidates. And uh, for the first time ever, it's actually kind of pathetic that because it's still not that great, but for the first time ever, there will be over a hundred uh, elected members, uh, female representatives mm. in the house. So it's, it's a more progressive oriented democratic party. Maybe it doesn't fit with the notion that we're a less progressive oriented country as a whole. Well, and I think there's another juxtaposition here to be made, which is when I look at the Florida, Florida governor's race and there were right. quite a few not so thinly veiled racist shots at Andrew Gillum, the democratic candidate for governor. And in the end, the candidate who won, is the one who, you know, either let that happen or spearheaded it or whatever you want to say, but didn't exactly uh, fight entirely fair, which was Ron DeSantis. So I guess, right. you know, it's, it's an interesting thing here where we've got all this stuff going on. Everything is moves scant, uh, slanting progressive just in terms of different kinds of candidates. But I'll, I'll just ask you this directly. How effective is dog whistling in campaigns in 2018? Is this still a viable strategy? Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's not funny, obviously. It's, it's kind of sad. Yeah. I mean, DeSantis started his um, his general election campaign by basically, you know, a, a dog whistle. He said, uh, I hope Floridians don't uh, monkey this up. Maybe yes. I'm screwing up the quote, but that, that was the gist. And, you know, the connotation was I'm running against the black guy. He's a monkey. Yes. Um, you know, for a while, the assumption was that, well, basically throughout the whole thing, the assumption was that Gilm was going to transcend it and win. And he had that memorable debate line where he said, you know, I don't think you're, I'm not calling you racist. I think the racists think you're racist. <laughs> and that seemed to be like the most powerful debate moment of modern political history. And then it was for not. I mean, the guy lost. Um, so you have to step back and ask yourself, why, why did he lose? I mean, part of it is just Florida is a weird place. Um, you know, it's basically two different, countries or two, two different states inside inside of the state it's incredibly polarized and donald trump you know he is like the florida man more or less and he yeah. he, he gets uh, the old floridians out and he's you know he kind of speaks their language and he's you know his mar-a-lago is based in florida he yeah. he appeals to them in ways that other republicans don't but i think to your point um secondarily you know a lot of this is race um there's this whole thing called the Bradley effect. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Bradley effect is basically where black candidates seem to do better in public opinion polls because people who are responding to pollsters are too afraid to sort of cop to racist feelings or undertones. So they tell them, of course, I'll vote vote for the black candidate. And perhaps that was what fed Gillum's lead. I don't know if that's totally true, but Florida was the biggest polling miss of the cycle. 
but I do think, you know, if you look at Andrew Gilmore, Stacey Abrams uh, in Georgia, you see some of these numbers, and there does seem to be some hesitancy among white voters in supporting a black candidate to this day. I mean, I looked at the uh, numbers of white women in Georgia who voted for Brian Kemp, Stacey Abrams' uh, uh, opponent, and it was off the charts. It was something like high 70% of Gee. white women in Georgia. She could have made history as a female governor, not just a female black governor, but the gender appeal was completely overwhelmed, uh, it appears, by uh, sort of the racial politics. I want to get to Gillum and Abrams. I have something to say about Beto, too. We're going to try to cover that in a question or two. But just staying with the, you know, for lack of a better term, we'll call it the racially related point. But, uh, you know, the message coming out of the White House was for the House, for the races in general, hey, there's an immigrant takeover coming. You know, that this is why you need to get to the polls and you need to vote GOP. Right. Immigrant takeover is a reason to get out and vote. How effect, forget about whether we think it's a good message or not, but how effective do you think that message was? Because the, the GOP didn't do too badly, and we're going to get into specifics later, but, you know, it looks like they expanded their majority in the Senate. Yeah, they lost the House, but that was kind of expected. There weren't really, you know, some of the big, for lack of a better term, scallops didn't get scalped. Those are still there. Seemed like the GOP held on pretty darn well. Do you think that message of, of just trying to rile up the base and get them to vote did that work? Do you think that Trump's message was somewhat effective here? I don't know. It's it's tough to like call, you know point to direct causation, sure. you know, versus correlation. Um, the polling data says that immigration was like the second most important mm. voting issue for uh, voters yesterday, which is insane because we're at like you know record low border crossings in Mexico the the caravan is you know despite the warnings that they're all coming to take over the elections they remain a thousand miles away so they're not they're not here yep uh, but you know Trump managed uh, effectively to rile up a lot of fear and i think even more effectively to drive news coverage i mean if i'm if i'm stepping back and doing you know, analysis of my own industry right now, hmm. you know, the media was to a certain degree uh, manipulated in the last week or two by the administration into sort of chasing that, you know, that ball that he threw. And, you know, I think that did have an impact. I don't think it was determinative. I think, um, you know, you have to look at other factors too. Trump is presiding over a real good economy, gangbusters even. I mean, this is the lowest unemployment in like 40 years. His approval is not that great, but it's not terrible. Yep. So, you know, he, there were factors working in his favor. And, and, of course, there is the whole notion of polarization, both in voting preferences and sort of how our districts are drawn. Uh, and so when you take that all into account, it sort of foretold the night that we were going to have where you saw a lot of these suburban house seats flip uh, and you saw a lot of these red Senate seats uh, go to Republicans I think, you know, there's too many factors to say one was just determinative. Oh, God. So many follow-up questions. We're going to see if we can get through all this. Well, let's do it. Let's do it. I, I like all this. And, and media manipulation, you talked about that. Nothing bothers me more. And, you know, I'm, I'm attempting to get through this podcast as a, as a relatively nonpartisan person and just an observer here. <laughs> but, we'll see how that goes. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that the if you look back at 2016, Whatever you want to say about Trump, whatever you want to say about anything that went down, the bottom line is yeah. that on the front page of the New York Times on the eve of the election, emails! She sent some damn yeah. emails, buddy, and wow, we need to really look into that. And the fact of the matter is that the Times had had, you know, and I'm not going to get into 
partisan politics in general, but specifically with the Clintons. The Times had had a hard-on for the Clintons for a billion, zillion years, and anything that happened, if they sneezed, there was something going on. And that played a big role in throwing the election. There's You cannot say that it didn't. Either maybe there was economic disenfranchisement, maybe Trump tapped into some populist this. Sure, fine. The Times completely screwed oh, the Oh, come on, of course, man. There was like, what, what was it, 80,000 votes in three states? That yes! Yes. Yeah. So of my question to you, my question to and, you is, you know, go, sure. I'll see if I can pose this. So you said, well, you know, Trump waved his keys and the media followed it. Well, the Times did this. Dudes, like, when are we going to be better? Come on, man. And I'm, I'm asking this sincerely. Is the media always going to be manipulated? Anybody charismatic? Or they're just looking for a horse race or whatever? Can they not call a spade a spade and say, this candidate kind of sucks. This candidate's pretty good. Maybe vote accordingly. So I, I have, like, sort of a mixed opinion on this. I think we need to do better as an industry, right? I, I think we need to recognize when we're being you know, told to look at the running, the squirrel running away. Yes. But I do think there were some positive signs in the close of this campaign. So, for instance, uh, the Trump campaign put together like this incredibly racist, I'll call it racist because it was racist, ad uh, involving an illegal immigrant who came back in this country and yep. killed uh, two policemen. And it was like really and Bush, it was Bush who invited him back. Right? Clinton exiled the It was Bush who invited him yeah. back. Right. Got it was Joe Arpaio who had released him from his custody. Yeah. So it was like misleading in addition to yes. being uh racist. And you know, the media basically was like, This is racist. And then some media was like we're not going to cover this. Now, some media, some media did run the ad, but yep. then they they decided not to. But you know, I think that's like a genuinely positive step in the right direction to say this is wrong and racist and you know factually inaccurate, and we're just going to call it as it is. So I think that's positive. Now, to your point, there is still work to do, and I actually would be curious to hear your thoughts on this because yeah. one of the big one of the big problems I feel like our industry has not quite grappled with yet is what to do. When you are presented, and this happened in 2016, with information that was either hacked or stolen or uh, obtained illegally that has clear news value, but you know it was obtained illegally. And so this is a problem that's confronted political reporters, obviously, because of Hillary's emails being hacked and published on WikiLeaks. But it's something that's continuing to confound us because the threat of that type of you know information being obtained and published is omnipresent. But I think it's also something that can pop up in the sports world too. So yeah. my I don't really have a good answer to that. Like I, I still am grappling with what to do in those scenarios. Pardon me says you, you should you have to cover something that's news. Even if it's you know, you can't just ignore something that's in the public domain. But part of me recognizes that you're basically starting a very slippery slope, which is you're encouraging people to surreptitiously obtain documents and post them for everyone to see. And I just don't know what to do editorially there. I think when it comes to all that, and I'm going to answer this for, um, you know, despite my, a lot of my background being in sports, as a business writer, yeah. as I'll, just, I'll, I'll just answer it as a journalist. Sure. It seems to me that the way to go is to put everything in context, and everything is about context. The Times, and I'm just going to go back to the Times, put a 174-point font or whatever the hell it was and said, oh, holy crap, it's World War III, and she sent right. some emails. And tr- we, I, I'm trying to remember if by then we knew that Trump was using his cell phone. I guess he wasn't elected president yet, but there was some feeling that the other side was kind of being a little bit loose with their communications and, and not so... Um, careful with it. Furthermore, the emails didn't necessarily reveal massive malfeasance. I mean, yes, there were violations, but you had to compare it to the other side too. And I would also add 
that if you knew that it came from a hack, your responsibility was to research that hack and see who would have a vested interest. Now, maybe you can't in a day figure out, oh, yeah, it's the Kremlin that's trying to manipulate America. (laughs) I grant you that. But, you know, you need to ask these questions in the moment and make the best guess you can and not just say, well, we good. It will write the follow up tomorrow because you're going to sway the electorate one way or another. You might have to, if not sit on it, at least make it an you know an A five column at first. I, at least yeah, and that's, that's my that's my thinking too. Yeah. And this is so to get back to twenty eighteen, like the caravan thing pops up, basically not out of the blue, but it's a right wing uh, internet thing for a couple of days. Then it gets put into the Fox News ether, and then Trump picks it up. And that's basically the origins of that story. Yeah. The caravan for the uninitiated is like six to 7,000 really impoverished migrant Hondurans who fled the country because of the terrible economic conditions there and are trying to make it to the United States to apply for asylum, which is totally illegal. Yep. It's completely legal. We can't Something block them. About it. We. The White House can't block <laughs> them. All the military people going down to the border, they're just there to lend assistance to the border control. They can't shoot yeah. at people. They have to let them in. Exactly. Yeah. So... Trump makes this into this, he starts talking about things like unknown Middle Easterners being part of it and gangs and then taking over our cities and ruining our elections and so on and so forth. And the question in that point, it's not a stolen document, obviously, but it's sort of like a a fabricated issue, obviously. The question at that point is, what do you do editorially? And, you know, the New York Times put the caravan on A1 two days in a row. I think that was probably, you know, that's probably the call I would not make. Uh, I think you have to contextualize these things. I think if you write about it, you have to note the, the origins of the story. And I think you have to note the timing of it and the context of it. And you have to put it in context. So my, I come down and say you can't ignore this stuff because it's out there and he is the president. But it is truly like your job and duty as a journalist to put it in the right framework. And sometimes we do it and sometimes we still fail to do it. Yeah, I think that all tracks, most definitely. Uh, you know, I, I, this is going to be a slightly tangential question, but I, when, sure. in the larger scheme, I don't think it is. We talked about immigration as being the number two issue. Some impoverished people coming in and maybe getting asylum, obviously not a major issue within the context when you use, you know, cl- uh, when you use context. But I gotta ask. Is climate change ever going to become an issue in an election? Because, yes, of course, the economy and the day-to-day matters very much. If I'm, you know, 42 and i got three kids to feed and I live in Loudoun County, Virginia, I, or anywhere, that's, that's very important. Right, right. But we're not going to have a planet. I mean, I, I don't, you know, this is an objective fact. I mean, well, it, it is likely to be an objective fact that you look at climate scientists and you look at all the data – I'm a data guy. If the data said otherwise, whether or not it tracked with my political leanings, I would say, okay, that's what the data say. The data say pretty clearly we're in big fat trouble. And, you know, you look at extreme weather events and they're on the rise. And these things are going to wreck our agriculture potentially and are going to flood the state of Florida. And we're arguing over, well, you know, God, we'll see about the uh, GDP and how that's going to go and we'll see about unemployment and we'll see about this. This is all, you know, that it has nothing to do with anything if we're floating on pontoons in the middle of the ocean. You know, I hear you, man. Yeah. I hear you. It's funny because, well, it's not funny, but, you know, we're worried about six to 7,000 migrants yeah. coming from Honduras. Climate change will cause a massive, oh, yes. uh, you know, migration crisis of millions from places in the planet that become basically inhabitable. So if we're worried about the caravan, you know, people who actually legitimately fear this type of stuff have their priorities sort of 
out of whack. And to your point, it's, you know, everyone's like, you know, there's a famous cartoon where, you know, you have like the, you know, the weights where on the one hand there's the globe and on the other hand there's like the, you know, piles of cash and do you want to risk the economy? It's like, well, you don't have an economy if you don't have a planet. So you better, you know, prioritize the planet. Uh, to answer your question of whether it will ever be a top issue, yeah. uh, it's sort of a chicken and egg proposition here. Um, the answer is no for now because, you know, the people who vote tend to not really prioritize yeah. it. Uh, you know, they, they just don't seem to think of it as a threat. And that's partially because it's sort of a slow moving threat. Um, but, and this is the caveat here, if somehow uh, the younger generations were to get engaged politically at, you know, proportions that were similar to or even exceeded middle-aged and older-aged Americans, yeah. that's the big if, then it would, by, you know, by sheer necessity, have to be prioritized as an issue because every public opinion data shows that they care about climate change far in far greater percentages than any other um, age cohort. And if they prioritize it and they vote, then politicians would have to cater to that interest. It would be it would be in their own political interest to prioritize it as an issue. So that's why I say it's a chicken and egg thing, because you basically need the voters to enter the political and electoral process in order for it to become a major issue, as opposed to the traditional way, which is that the politicians make it an issue and the voters follow. Well, and we saw, it seems like from the moment that the 2016 election ended, so many grassroots grass, grassroots groups emerging to try to really gin up the electorate to try to say, hey, let's get out there and vote, and especially young people. So, yeah, you know, we've been talking about that forever, the moral hazard of a 60-year-old who doesn't give a crap because they're not going to have to deal with climate change, but the 25-year-old will. Do the crosstabs suggest that 25-year-olds or 18-year-olds voted more in this election than in previous midterms? Or are we pretty much where yeah. we were before? No, the youth turnout was up a little bit. Uh, well, I haven't seen the final numbers, but it, yeah. anecdotally, youth turnout did seem to be up. And that's a good thing, right? Like yeah. getting more kids engaged is very helpful. It's not even you know, remotely in the same stratosphere, of course, as the elderly population. And I don't know if it ever will be. Um, you know, you, I saw these reports about, you know, college-age kids about why they weren't voting. And basically, one of them, like, answered something like, I don't like mailing stuff. That oh, was legitimately on. their answer. <laughs> no, that was legitimately answer. And it's like, come on, man. You, you got to try a little harder than that. Um, now, there are groups out there that are trying desperately to engage uh, these young voters in ways that haven't happened before. And I, chief among them is uh, Tom Steyer's Next Generation America, right. which actually has a more robust presence on college campuses, far more robust presence on college campuses than the Democratic National Committee, which has barely any presence on college campuses. Um, but, you know, even Tom Sire's group, it's like, you know, we're talking about a drop in a bucket. So there's so much more work that could be done. The problem is, is that anyone who's investing in politics recognizes that the investment per payoff is terrible. Yeah. Uh, you could put in millions upon millions of dollars and not get many votes out of it. Uh, whereas, you know, well, turning out reliably elderly voters is a far smarter investment. So the economics just aren't there. Uh, let's switch gears and let's go back to Gillum, Abrams. We'll throw Beto in there, too. Yeah, they were all sure. granted this, like, rock star status by Democratic operatives, the media, what have you. What happens to candidates like these after they lose? Is that it? Or is it that they're their status 
is going to matter for something. I mean, I guess Bernie lost and Bernie became still, you know, remained, uh, has remained somewhat of a bellwether within the party. But obviously these uh, ladies and gentlemen don't hold Bernie status. Will we see them fade yeah. into the background or can something be done with all the money that was raised and all the enthusiasm that was raised? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I used to have a podcast about where I interviewed candidates. Yes, it was great. Lost. Thank you. Thank you. It's no longer with us. Rest in peace. But, uh, you know, basically most of them just go on with their lives and don't really re-engage in politics. Now, I think there are certain candidates um, for whom the future could be bright. And I think Beto is one of them, not because he's, you know, a rock star uh, and not because people think that he could be president. And I don't see how you can run for president after losing your Senate race and just being a house member. It's because he built an infrastructure. Like there has to be a foundation to your, you know, your political appeal in order for it to be enduring. So Beto built the, I, I, people make fun of Beto because he got all these, uh, glossy magazine type profiles, but he legitimately built the most impressive grassroots fundraising apparatus in Senate election history. Yeah. And he will have potentially redefined uh, political fundraising for a generation of Democrats, what can be done and how it can be done. Hmm. Uh, things he did on the campaign are completely innovative that get missed by a lot of the pundits. Uh, for instance, just the sheer amount of live streaming that he did, uh, making him accessible to voters in ways that no politician normally would, was, you know, it won't work for every person. You have to be authentic, obviously, but it was innovative and it provides a template for this. So he will now have a following, a committed following that is not just political people, but people who were engaged politically because of him. He will have an email list that is uh, expansive, to say the least. And he can use that in ways that uh, other candidates who are simply can't. The same is true of Bernie. Bernie happened to have uh, the, the good fortune of still being in the United States Senate, which gave him a purse yes. uh, to, to have a national profile. But Bernie has a huge, huge email list distribution, which allows him to be a kingmaker for other Democrats. Beto can do that role as well. Where Beto is sort of limited is that, you know, Texas remains fairly Republican. It's not totally Republican, but, you know, they're not going to, he's not, I don't, they just elect, you know, they just elected the governor again. There's a Senate election in two years for John Cornyn's I I don't think he turns around and does this all over again. It seems exhausting. Um, there's no Democratic administration for him to join. Um, so you, you start looking at the future opportunities, and they're not that great. Um, but I, I can't imagine having that type of infrastructure and not using it to some sort of political end. Uh, Andrew Gillum is a different case. I, I honestly don't know where he goes from here. His appeal is clear. It's obvious. Florida has definitely more opportunities for Democrats, especially on statewide levels, although he's going to have to wait four years for that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's the Marco Rubio seat, but that was, you know, coming up in four years as well. So some of these people have opportunities. Some of them don't. But I think key for endurance is having that infrastructure. All right. So you mentioned the suburbs. I want to get into that because the cynicism in me is rising here, and I'll tell you why. So, okay, so all these suburban voters, well, they're totally going to flip. They're totally going to go away from Trump in 2018. What is it 
that they didn't see. I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant about this, but what is it that they didn't see <laughs> in 2016 that they saw in 2018? Oh, Trump is a megalomaniac and he runs the country a certain way and he's a super racist. I mean, yes, like the economy's good. There are certain things. The economy's good. Uh, you know, he's certainly for defense, I guess, but he was the most predictable candidate of all time. Meaning, like, if, I'll stop denigrating Trump for a second. Whatever you think of Trump in 2016 is absolutely true in 2018. Nothing changed. Everybody and their mom could see this coming down the pike. So what is it that changes in two years that makes voters say, oh, whoa, wow, we made a big mistake. We better go back to the other side. Well, maybe it wasn't something about Trump that changed. Maybe it was that his opponent was no longer on the ballot. Ah. I mean, that's probably I think I think people sort of underappreciate, and I, you know I think a lot some of this, if not a good chunk of it, was you know wrongly applied to her. But I think people underappreciate how toxic Hillary Clinton was for a lot of thanks New York Times uh, for a lot of voters. I think I think uh, especially uh, for suburbs for the suburban mm. um, families too. I think you know the Clinton family was you know had its political baggage. I think she had her own political baggage. I think, you know, it, you know, also it's very tough to, you know, run essentially for a third term, which is what she was doing, a continuation of the Obama administration. And, you know, historical patterns suggest that's nearly impossible. It very rarely happens. Like George H.W. Bush probably was one time in modern history where that took place. But, you know, she was she was not a great candidate calling a spade a spade. She, you know, she did things that were stupid. Calling half the country deplorable is not a smart political yes. move. Even if you feel like part of the country is deplorable, you just you just don't call them that. So I think Trump greatly benefited from her weaknesses. Uh, and I think we're sort of in the midst of a political realignment, too. And we just hadn't caught up with it yet. But the nativism that Trump was espousing, the sort of old school misogyny that he represents, uh, was offending a lot of people, but they weren't willing to make a vote on it. And I think increasingly as they witness it, they are. So let's talk about the success of the GOP here. They did well with the Senate. Looks like they're likely to defend right. the majority. There's some concessions that haven't come down the pike, but we can see them happening. So let's assume that Heidkamp lost, Donnelly lost, McCaskill lost. And it's interesting, too, because if you take a step back, North Dakota is so obviously a GOP. This is not a Democratic state. It's not a left-leaning state. Uh, Missouri right. is a little leaner but tends to lean right. Indiana tends to lean right. How did we get to the point that we had Democratic senators in those states anyway and, and are now – should we project that, okay, in the next 30 years we'll go back to status quo? Because I, I always found it interesting, Heitkamp particularly, like how the heck did that happen? What, where were we? And was this, was this a blip or was this – you know, are these are these viable pickups in future elections for, this, for the uh, Democrats? So uh, the, the history here is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. The, the, so the last election cycle where this class was up was 2012. Yep. And 2012 was obviously a good year for Democrats. Obama won. He sort of juiced turnout a lot. But some of these Senate elections were completely not predicted by Democratic operatives in that moment. Heidkamp was one of them. She sort of eked it out at the very last minute. Basically, uh, you know, you're a numbers guy. You know Nate Silver. Nate Silver had Nate Silver. predicted 49, 49 of the 50, you know, Senate races that yeah. year, or whatever it was. Heidkamp was the only one he didn't predict. Yeah. She, you know, she, she, there was no poll that showed her head. Her only, only poll that showed her head was her internal poll. No one believed it. And she stood out because, uh, the Native American tribes in North Dakota came out heavily for her. Now, Joe Donnelly in Indiana just kind of locked out by having 
a really terrible opponent that you're going to name, Richard Murdoch, who made some insane inflammatory marks, I believe, about rape, but they, uh, it could be about something else. Yeah. And he just imploded at the end. Claire McCaskill got incredibly lucky with the opponent she drew. Uh, Todd Aiken, another insane candidate who really, you know, self-imploded. And, you know, they were able to, because of that, pick up these seats in states that were really either Republican already or trending heavily in that direction. Yes. Um, and so for six years, this was a ticking time bomb for Democrats. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're, what happened last night in part was expected. I think the unexpected stuff, if, if you could say, was the big misses in Florida where the polling seemed to suggest that Rick Nelson, yep. um, I'm sorry, Bill Nelson was, was going to uh, actually hold on to the seat. And it to be determined uh, up uh, down in Arizona, where Kirsten Cinema seemed to have a, a decent shot of winning. She still might. Um, you know, those were those were the races that you could say, okay, Democrats sort of really fumbled the ball. Uh, and even that would be you know, debatable because Florida is such a toss up. So now to the broader point, now you have a scenario where you got like fifty four, fifty five Republicans in the Senate. You have a map that is. Mm, Somewhat nicer to Democrats coming up in 2020. Uh, some pick up opportunities, but if you ask me now, it would be difficult to score four or five. Mm. So you'll have you'll have a Republican-run Senate uh, for the next two years for sure, which means that Trump is going to dramatically reshape the nation's judiciary. Mm. Uh, he won't be able to get any legislation through Congress because the House is now in Democratic hands. So. The only real thing he can do, two things. One is executive actions, uh, which, you know, can, you know, mingle, you know, move regulations yep. on healthcare environment and so on. And the other big thing is to basically nominate and confirm judges. And that's what they're going to spend the next two years doing. So we will have the ramifications of this election will be felt for 30, 40 years. These are lifetime appointments. Uh, so that's, a, that's obviously a problem for Democrats. The other thing, though, is that Trump can now sort of safely and reliably repopulate his own cabinet. So Jeff Sessions is likely to be fired in the coming days or weeks. Uh, a bunch of other cabinet officials are rumored to be leaving. You know, if it was a Democratic-controlled center, if it was a really close margin, Trump would probably have to play it safe with some of his cabinet picks. But if he's got three votes to spare, then he can pick some people who are more sycophantic. And mm. so... You know, the next attorney general could be someone who comes in and just takes over control of the Robert Mueller special, the special prosecutor's investigation of uh, a Russian election medley, because uh, they won't have to recuse themselves like Jeff, Jeff Sessions. And the Senate will confirm him or her uh, fairly comfortably. So th th there are huge ramifications for that as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the House is now in Democratic control, but Trump's powers are not curtailed in the slightest. Yeah, Frank Stallone as Secretary of State is going to be super. I'm looking forward to that. So <laughs> I, I want to ask you this then, because you ran right into my next question, which is, yeah, the Democrats took the House. You said it. You know, as far as judiciary goes, the Senate can confirm, and, and people really underestimate, people talk about the Supreme Court, but they really underestimate the value of the importance of circuit court judges. They're massively important. And, of course, those are the ones that have inevitably become Supreme Court justices. So there's that. There's also the executive order. Trump has not been shy about it. And I'm, I will play both sides and say that Obama was not shy about it. That's something that a president can certainly do. They can write executive orders. Is it really that big a deal that the Democrats took the House? This is a guy who flouts every convention in the world, who's still got the Senate, who's still got the power of the executive order, who frankly just ignores a lot of, you know, mores that go with the office. 
I, again, I'm trying not to be cynical, but does this actually mean anything, or is this kind of an overrated victory? No, it's a huge amount. Don't be so cynical. Okay. okay. <laughs> like, this is this is. We had two years of um, unchecked executive yeah. power. I mean, if he had, let's say, well, how about if we think about it in in the reverse? If Democrats had not gained the House, yeah. what would have happened? Right. Trump would have just gone, he would have taken it to 11. He would have, you know, he would have assumed that all the nativism and demonization that he did work politically and he'll well, still do it, but it would have gone even further. Yeah. He would have, you know, pushed forward incredibly draconian immigration policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he would have curtailed civil rights to the extent that he could. And he would have all done this all without any investigative check on his presidency. Yeah. The House going to Democrats is... Uh, you know, seismic in terms of what it means. You know, everything from, you know, corruption at the cabinet agencies to Trump's personal finances to, you know, his relationship with Russia prior to the 2016 election, that now is going to be opened up hmm. for public consumption. Any legislation that Trump was hoping to push is now dead in its tracks. Hmm. The executive orders that you're talking about, yeah, they'll happen, but they will be challenged legally, and many of them will not be put into implementation. So, you know, this check on Trump's powers is incredible. And I think one thing that we're overlooking here, in addition to the House flipping, is the gubernatorial pickups that Democrats got. That yes. Democrats got. yes. And the state house uh, pickups, 330 state house uh, seats flipped last night or something like that. That, you know, people don't pay attention to those things because they're not as glitzy as the federal stuff. But in 2020, they're going to do redistricting. And redistricting means redrawing the maps of congressional districts. That follows the census. If you don't have a seat at the table in the state, it your state map gets gerrymandered. That's just the way it is. And so now that the Democrats have some more say, you will affect the composition of the House for the next decade. So this is a big deal. Well, and two, and that was literally my next question was about the pickups in state houses. You know, one that I look at is now that we've got a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, saying that Roe is going to go down is a big one, but certainly curtailing this is, and this is just one of many issues, but curtailing abortion rights. This is something that's been going on for a long time, that there's only one clinic, I believe, in the state of North Dakota. There was a great article I read in Oddly Cosmo that talked about that. That was one of the best articles I've read on the subject. Uh, Texas, you know, has really lots of states have cut it down. If state houses right. become more robustly democratic, then the expected legal challenges, because there's going to be a legal challenge, and even if it comes way, way far on the right, the goal is to simply kick it upstairs and get it to the Supreme Court. This would seem to potentially, uh, you know, impede the ability to say, oh, these hallways aren't wide enough, therefore nobody can have reproductive rights. It seems like that's that could be a check against that, unless I'm reading it wrong. No, I think you're reading it right. I, I'm probably a little bit more uh, cynical about uh, the future of reproductive rights in this country because okay. I think you know this is the this is the end game for Christian conservatives, and yes. you know the court packing will continue. Well, it's not court packing. The nomination and confirmation yes. of conservative judges will continue, and you know I maybe Roe will survive ultimately because you know some of these some of these. Um, Sorry, my dog is not barking after yours. Some of these justices did pledge their fidelity to upholding Roe. But, you know, they're going to chip away at it. They will pass things that, you know, restrict abortion access for 
you know, number of weeks they will, you know, make it easier for states to close down clinics, you know, force women to go con- get consultations that are, you know, onerous and, and, and difficult. And so I think there is going to be not a maybe full repeal of Roe v. Wade, but it will be dramatically curtailed, I think, going forward. So the House flips, and you mentioned Tom Steyer, Great article by my former colleague Katie Baker in The Ringer. Uh, terrific profile of Mr. Steyer. There have been other profiles out there as well. And one of his signature platform, maybe his, his number one signature platform is what he calls need to impeach, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Mr. Steyer is interested in uh, bringing impeachment articles against the president. And what was, what struck me about that article, but just about reading in general was that obviously Republicans have no interest in impeachment, but Democrats don't seem to either. That Axelrod, for one, came out, obviously one of the highest end Democratic operatives in our recent history, and said, well, if we do this, and any politician we don't like, we'll just uh, somebody will try to impeach the guy or gal. And my thought to that was, well, gee, I mean, wouldn't it make sense that you would have the pre-existing conditions for impeachment? And if you talk about, you know, the standards that are supposed to be met, objectively, you could argue, and I'm going to attempt to, again, throw my partisan hat in the trash, you could argue that Trump has circumvented some of these things, that there there would seem to be grounds for it. Is this going to get anywhere, or is this just such a third-rail thing that, for reasons Axelrod cited, or because the Democrats are too genteel or whatever, there's no scenario in which that even becomes a conversation? So the problem here is, you know, everyone basically that I talk to in Democratic politics is you know, convinced that Trump is terrible and needs to go and yep. probably has done things that would, you know, you know, come close to, if not exceed. Emoluments alone. Emoluments certainly yeah. would seem That would be the one. So, that, that's, yeah. so that's, the base, that's the baseline we're, we're operating on. Mm-hmm. The, where people diverge greatly is what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And the, the cynics about impeachment basically say, and they're not wrong, they say it's not a legal issue, it's a political issue. And if you have... If you have 54 Republican senators, yes, you're not it's going just anywhere. Literally impossible yeah. to get the guy out, and, and 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 they also know incorrectly too that the risk of impeachment politically is that you end up engendering a huge amount of sympathy for the president. I mean, this is what happened with Bill Clinton. Now yes. the, the circumstances are dramatically different. Yes. We're not talking about <laughs> an affair with an intern, uh, which was problematic, but not you know necessarily legally dubious, but. We're, you know, it still runs the risk of turning Trump into a pariah. Mm-hmm. And so now now you're, you know, th- so that's the political case against the Speaker. The people who are pro-pushing say, yes, you, these are hurdles that have to be overcome, but you can't overcome them unless you talk about it in a coherent and direct way. And simply saying we're not going to talk about it is, go- is basically ceding the argument to Republicans. Yeah. And so that's that's a Steyer point of view. It's like, I'm not calling for him to be gone tomorrow. I'm saying you need to start talking about it now so that the American public can actually be educated about what this man is doing. So where does that leave us? I think in the end, you're going to end up seeing the House Republic, House Democrats take a very strategic approach to this stuff and really, in some cases, probably end up disappointing hmm. the pro-impeachment crowd. I think they're going to not go. I think they look at what happened in 2011 when Republicans took the House and how they went, you know, were really overzealous in how they investigated the Obama administration and ended up, you know, presaging Obama's win in 2012. And they're going to say, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to take, we're going to, we're going to like pick and choose our investigations. We're going to get the low hanging fruit. 
uh, and you know what comes of it, we can build off of. And then you're going to have Tom Steyer's world saying, "Go further, go further, go further." Yeah. And what's interesting is that Steyer, you know, a very controversial figure in Democratic circles, is building the type of infrastructure that I was talking about with you with Beto and and Gillum. He has an email list that I believe is over six million people right now. Yeah, that is that is. If not the biggest, the second biggest email list in Democratic politics. He will be able to motivate voters across the country. He has gone out and done uh, town halls in all the critical 2020 states. He's very likely to run for office. And he will be a force. I don't think he's going to win necessarily, but he will be a force in that primary. And he will drive the conversation in ways that may make the Democratic Party uh, a little bit uncomfortable. All right, so let's do one last question since we talked about it with Steyer, which is the midterms are done. There's no rest for the wicked, Sam. I know you slept five minutes last <laughs> night. When do we start seeing presidential candidates throw their hats in the ring? When is when when typically should we expect that to happen? I think it's going to happen probably in December, January, uh, around then. Okay. That's the traditional thing. Uh, you're going to see a lot of people making, you know, pretty obvious. Uh, forays and overtures. Um, you know, somehow Des Moines and Manchester become destination spots yes. all of a sudden <laughs> in the dead of winter. And, you know, and people are, you know, beginning, to, people are already, you know, to be perfectly candid, people are already making moves. I mean, yeah. there are people who are looking at runs who are talking to staffers, hiring folks, making sure that, you know, consultants uh, that they want are interested in joining their team. Uh, you know, Steyer's building his email list. If you look at one of my favorite things to look at is um, some of the prospective 2020ers are buying up huge amounts of digital ads mm-hmm. on Facebook, and they're not up for re-election until like 2022 or 2024. So there's no reason for them to be buying digital ads at this point, except for the fact that it's a great way to collect email addresses and raise money. And so, like you see Cory Booker and Kamala Harris doing this, and it's just a it's just a really funny, innovative way to actually go about building an infrastructure. So it's happening all behind the scenes already. A formal declaration probably won't come for a little bit, uh, but it's starting. And yeah, you're right. There is no rest. And I, it, it like makes me a little bit sad, but I'll get, I'll get over it. <laughs> well, the good news is that if there's one thing that uh, never goes wrong, it's political operatives um, trying to manipulate Facebook for their own ends. I find that that's, that, <laughs> there's no problem there and everything will go nice and smooth. Uh, Sam Stein, you're, you're a gem and uh, we had actually paused this halfway in between to say this is fun, we should do it again let's try to do it again uh, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your work at the Daily Beast and that podcast that you had was really cool by the way uh, <laughs> thank you, I appreciate it yeah, 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 I enjoy all of your work and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show, thank you so much alright, thanks John, take care man you too